This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I just got this call from Letterman's people. I didn't get a shot for quite a while. I then realized I've got to just take this shot. I don't think two people can work together for 33 years without there being affection and an ability to solve problems together and, and work out creative difficulties if, if there ever is any. Absolutely. I mean, you guys were a real pair and team. It was Letterman's show. It was Late Night with David Letterman. And you were on every episode. I mean, it was his show. I was his employee. And he was so kind and generous with airtime. life insurance. We have to do it. We have to protect our family. And one company, our latest sponsor, is making it a lot easier. PolicyGenius.com is the place where I go to learn about life insurance, compare quotes from all of America's top providers, and save up to 40% on your policy. So if you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out PolicyGenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free, there's no sales pressure, and there's zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com, it's life insurance for the 21st century. Do you know where to post your job to find the absolute best candidates? I'm gonna tell you. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted at ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. So I just want to start off by saying, Paul Schaefer, there's so many things you're known for, but obviously you're known for being uh, David Letterman's sidekick slash band leader for 33 years. You were also involved in SNL, the Blues Brothers, so many different projects. Uh, It's an honor to have you here on the show. Well, what a lovely introduction, and I thank you, and it's a, it's an honor to be here. You know, introductions are always the hardest, because it's kind of like the most awkward part of a conversation. What, like, is getting it started? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but, I don't know. It's know, all awkward. You that's, know, why, that's why some podcasters let's go. will say, we'll do the intro bef- uh, separately, and say, I'm oh, about to have a Paul Schaefer, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then they go directly. No, but it can kick you off, you know, yeah. into a thing, and after all, we're not doing an intro like... Sammy Davis would have done on his show. Your a, your hero and mentor, Sammy Davis. My, yes, exactly. I like how you called him up on the phone once and called him Shmuel, which I guess is Yiddish for Sam. Yes, because <laughs> he was, was Jewish. His rat, because he was Jewish, and his Rat Pack name probably a little bit tongue in cheek, even and was Shmuel. I mean, probably Joey Bishop would have been the guy who who named him Shmuel, and I called. I spoke to his wife Altavis, you know. And we all knew her from the talk shows. These was our, you know, nowadays, you know, I might know everything about, uh, you know, Mark Maron, but 
Then it was, you know, Sammy, and we knew his wife was Altavis, and we knew to call her Alto. So I immediately said, Alto, but, you know, where's Shmuel? Yeah, and she didn't funny. miss a beat. You know, uh, this African-American uh, woman who was married to Sammy, she said Shmuel is sleeping, which he was, she, without missing, you know, not even taking a breath. I mean, if you think about it, well, we're going to get into so much stuff here. Um, you know, like, basically five decades worth of, entertainers and i mean you you it's sort of like could be a little exaggeration but no, i mean 60s, I 70s know. 80s 90s O's, oh i guess oh, all those <laughs> that, yeah 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 and a little bit of my parents you yeah. know as we all you know all of us baby boomers to whom the sullivan the ed sullivan show on sunday night was so important it was just waiting for the beatles you know but yeah even before that it was very important that the family gather and watch the Ed Sullivan show. And he, with his bookings, a little something for everyone, we learned about our parents' uh, generation of entertainers, too. Well, it's, it's and a, let's face it, the Sammies and Jerry Lewis's, you know, that's a little, really my, more of our parents' generation than ours. Right, although you were... So that's 50s, even 40s, because we know about the old movies a little bit. Not I, I'm not an affectionate of that, but a lot of people know the Clark Gable and that era of movies too, you know? Well, you know, it's it. you bring up so many things and there's a lot I want to touch on. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. One is how I love how your career is this perfect intersection of music and comedy, right? If, if, some, if, if you had just tried just to be a musician, or just to be, let's say, a comedian, it might have been a much more difficult route for you. But you had so many talents in both that for you to do the intersection made your career a lot more flexible and 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 unique yes, to you. Absolutely. It's true. You sound like you've analyzed. Oh, oh, yes. Me I've and I analyzed. should be lying down on a couch. Uh, yeah, uh, that that could be. Well, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. But um, you know, the the other thing is is your role. You've also been very flexible in how you've helped people by helping others you were able to build yourself up your your career has been built on your ability to help others succeed and i think that's very valuable as well and then um you know finally you have you had you had uh you're the definition of in my view this is just my analysis you could disagree or not but there's this saying you know you're the average of the five people you spend your time with mm. and you always put yourself in a group of people you forced yourself in a group of people, uh, incredibly talented, like you know, and and that also propelled you. Like you would say no to opportunities to say yes, so you could be around the people who would propel you upwards. And, and, and as long as it went along with your passions, I didn't have to force all. You know, with all due sure. respect, right? right. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. I didn't like... necessarily mean it that way. Like like you had to like kick your way in. I meant it that you you would say no to things. Well, like well, I don't know about if I ever did that. <clears throat> okay. Um, I, I necessarily have to say no to. I mean, I had to say no to the Blues Brothers first yes. movie. Yes, certainly comes to mind. Only out of really loyalty to Gilda Radner, she and Belushi were, you know, both friends. Friends, and there was Aykroyd too. We were all quite close friends. You know, Belushi being. Uh, not a Canadian. The other two I knew from Canada, but Belushi, you know, one of the first guys I met when I came to. New York, thanks to uh, Billy Murray's older brother Brian Doyle Murray. Well, uh, well, I want to get to that it's because another whole story. Yeah, well, well, it's the story I want to start with. But 
before the podcast started, uh, your phone rang and it was playing It's Raining Men. Yeah. And I think most people don't know that this very popular song that everyone loves, you wrote. <laughs> I co-wrote it, yes. I'm so proud of it. Co-wrote with Paul it with, Jabara? Yes, the late, great Paul Jabara, who was the lyricist and conceptualist. You know, he had the title and was ready to go when we got together. And I think all- I think a lot of people don't, a lot of people think, oh, Paul Schaefer, he was the guy occasionally exchanging quips with David Letterman and doing the band. Um, but there are so many more other facets well, to your career. Well, all guys like me have that one song that they wrote that surprises people. Like Charlie Chaplin. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a Charlie Chaplin by any means, but he wrote Smile, Though Your Heart Is Aching. And you're, people are always like, really, Charlie Chaplin? He's a comic, you know, comedian movie uh but yes he wrote that i think i think people try to um stereotype too much they uh, try to stereotype careers well they- i maybe i may be guilty of that too actually um but that's another story yeah you you feel more comfortable with a pro you know as you you know you could imagine thinking about a you know you need to surgery, you know, and a guy comes in and says, well, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, yes, I'm a lung surgeon, but I don't want to be stereotyped that way, you know. Well, you have I'm like, really, I'm a plumber too, you know. You wouldn't feel as comfortable as if a guy just specializes in it. Yeah. In it, and so maybe everybody's like that. But yes, I did write It's Rating Men as well because I was, a mu- you know, a musician and everyone was in the seventies. Everybody was writing. You had to write too, you know. Well, I gave it a try, and I wrote this one with Paul Jabbar. And that was like nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty. Yeah, something like that. We wrote it before. I mean, it was in, during the two years that in between. In my case, you know, my Saturday Night Live five years, and then two years before I got that call from Letterman. And in there, you know, while doing Saturday Night Live, I was arranging. Uh, things becoming uh, that studio musician thing was always, I really wanted to be that. I thought that was the coolest. And I got to be that, you know, not, not really a first stringer like a uh, Richard T, the great pianist who played for Al Paul Simon and everybody at that time. But, but I was actually getting calls all the time, you know, to go and play on records and commercials and stuff. And it was so great. And Paul Jabbar was one of the guys that I arranged for. Uh, during the 70s era, uh, early disco experimentation that he did. He did one song called One Man Ain't Enough. And so you can see he was already kind of He's getting mining to be, those same uh, avenues. Well, and it's kind of playful, the notion of it's raining men and, you know, yeah. written by two men, by the way. So, uh-huh. so it's, uh, it, you know, I think I see also not only your music talents, but your comedic talents you know, in the, in Paul the lyrics. Paul was funny too. I say was, he's no longer with us. But very funny and uh, energetic and uh, theatrical, you know, was his bent. He had had a show, his own show on Broadway that he wrote. Rachel oh, Lily really? Rosenblum about a Bette Midler type of character that opened and closed in one night, I think. It was just as I was getting to New York around 74, this had happened. I remember that marquee, Rachel Lily Rosenblum. So, 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 and again, I think most people didn't even realize you spent a good five years with a one-year break on SNL. You were part of the original Original team. SNL crowd, yes. And I was the pianist uh, in you the, the house band. Did you were the pianist for Bill Murray's Lounge Singer act? Yeah, yes. I, you know, being hi- hired by Howard Shore, the musical director, also Canadian, 
Uh, I became a rehearsal pianist very naturally because there was Gilda, my old friend in the show in Belushi and Aykroyd, everybody, you know, I started working with them. I started writing, developing material with them, musical material, you know, and I became a writer of special musical material, collaborating with writers and performers, and then even got to, got to be in some sketches. Well, and, and I think that, uh, gosh, there's so many different directions I want to go. We're kind of uh, going on so, kind of the, the biographical stuff that's very important, but you sort of defined, and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea that uh, a musical production, a musical band can be behind a lot of this comedy, like late, like like the the band is just as much a part of the cast of an SNL uh -huh. or a late night show as the 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 well, other members of the the cast. Yes, well, well, because uh, I don't, I can't remember Johnny Carson's band, for instance. Maybe uh -huh. that's because I'm too Except young. Except that it. they had Doc Severinsen, who was the band leader and could and was very funny himself. But but like on David Letterman. You would be funny, not just with your back and forth with David, but you were listening so cl mm. closely to his jokes. You were ready with the bump bump. Well, you know, I'll all tell you different... what helped when we got in-ear monitors and you didn't want to wear headphones, and I respect that. You know, yeah. I'm not complaining about that in any way, but especially in the Ed Sullivan Theater, a very echoey place, and we were still using the old-fashioned uh, wedges as rock bands, you, you old-fashioned rock band, you would see you know things on the floor that were from which they could hear themselves, uh, which we would call met wedges, monitor wedges. I couldn't quite hear him, uh, and and if there was a laugh, I really couldn't hear him. And then we got these marvelous inventions that everybody wears now in rock in-ear monitors. They're headphones, but molded to the inside of your ears. So oh, okay. That's they're, like I, they're like, uh, you know, from an iPod, uh, mm -hmm. what do you call it, earbuds, yeah. but molded, so they're keeping out, they're protecting your ears from the hot, but you can also hear, I had his voice up as loud as I wanted in my own ears, and I could hear, then I was right on top of him, for sure, yes. But that's not only what were you right on top to of him, but you were able to create the music on the fly. Well, I would have, you know, as my crazy talent, uh, I knew a lot of songs. I just have a great memory for songs. And, and an ear for it. You weren't a sight reader. Yeah, right, exactly right. Uh, you seem to be, have to be one or the other in this life. And I'd least, much rather play by ear than by sight. And you're a musician? Well, I mean, I not really, but if I had a choice, I'd much rather be able to play by ear because well, me this too. is more I fun. Mean, that's what I chose. It's more from the heart, I think. But nonetheless, it would be great to sight read too. I can read and write music and all, just never not sight read. But I developed my ear, especially learn, listening to rock and roll as a kid on the radio up in Canada. Wow, that's what I want to do. And I said, rock and roll is very simple at that time. You only needed the three chords, you know. I learned them on the piano and could play all the different songs, and that's what I loved. Uh, so as a result, then I started to try to learn my parents' music. I didn't really learn how to play those kind of altered chords until uh, I was in college and I met a guy who showed me some stuff. But that's, again, another story. I, I got a big repertoire of songs. That became my talent. And on this Letterman show, I, I really, if I can pat myself on the back, I, I said to myself, let's make this gig as easy on me as I can because I know it's going to be every day and I hate homework. So let me just make it, I mean, it was going to be just four pieces when we started. It was that's perfect for me. That's what I know how to. Let's just play my favorite songs. I don't care about writing every cue and getting paid. I mean, it's so much work. Let me just give the money to Smokey Robinson and play all the songs that I love from my era. 
Right from the beginning, you were yeah. a cover. Let me just song do guy. yeah, and get guys that also could play by ear, and we all knew the same songs, and made it kind of easy. But also, we were prepared. I had a band too that knew all all the songs. Talented guys, I you know I bet every I was the worst musician, which is what you want, you know, in your band. So when there was a something mentioned that reminded me of a song, what the hell? I'll just go into it and. Seemed people. David seemed to like it, you know. So and your I band would, would go follow. Yeah, you. and they would jump in too. Let's just jump in. So, so I want to I want to reel back a little bit to what I think is a, a a fascinating part of your story, which is Godspell in Toronto, because mm-hmm. it seemed like uh, just to set the stage a little bit, it reminds me, and and maybe this seems like an odd metaphor. It reminds me of something called the Homebrew Club in San Francisco in the uh, 70s, which is where Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak all hung out as teenagers and they all went, and many other people, you know, and they all went off to start, they become mega stars in the technology space. It so seems is, there like a word, spell- is there a word for that phenomenon we hear about like Paris and in the 30s or something, you know, when all the philosophers... I, I I wonder if there was because you know you, yeah I think Paris was Hemingway and Fitzgerald and John Dos Passos and Gertrude for Stern. This, yeah, confluence somehow of of uh, talent. And you have the the beat movement with Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, all at hanging Everybody out. Everybody in the same, yeah. But Godspell, describe who was in that show. That these were all begin. This was where they everybody got their start. The cast, yeah, and we were all. And I say we. I was Early I was 70s. the band leader. You know, the musical conductor of it. 1972, I was 22, and so were most of these kids. Some a little bit older, but uh, Martin Short, who, you know, is still my best friend. Eugene Levy of the uh, incredible S- talent. SCTV. Dave Thomas, again, you know, incredible uh, talent from SCTV. Victor Garber, now a movie actor, and we know him from Alias and stuff, a straight actor. Andrea Martin, maybe the funniest of all of them, taught them all how to be funny. Yes, that was the Gilda cast. Radner. And the late, great Gilda Radner, yes, who was. And this was the Toronto cast of this 70s rock musical, Godspell. Gilda was from Detroit, but had followed a guy up to Toronto and was now a resident of Canada. Um, and yes, and it comes back to this gentleman who I've been mentioning as I do these interviews and try to promote my tour and stuff that I'm on now, you know. Uh, but I, I, everybody asks me about this, and um, it comes back to Stephen Schwartz, the Broadway composer, the theatrical composer of, of Wicked and so many other hits. This was his first hit, Godspell, and he was also, um, as was his style, he just knew that show backwards and forwards. He was sort of like the uber director of all the company, besides being the composer, and he was in Toronto casting. Uh, the final, and, and having the final auditions, had a director go up there to weed out, do the initial auditions and give some people callbacks. And now the final audition day, Stephen Schwartz himself comes up to cast. And he picked out each of these people. The show, Godspell, was, I mean, it was the story of Jesus uh, with rock music and clowns. Everybody was clowns. So it was, could, right, could be a little, I don't know if treacly is a word, but, you know, obviously... A concept like that could be awfully silly and precious. Uh, he was one of the guys associated with the company that was able to keep it right on the line. Just, you know, cute, yes, and religious a little bit, but rock, and, and also a lot of room for people to improvise. 
well, and it, put their own stuff in. And it seems like you have to, because it could verge on silly versus serious, you have to find the right comedic talent that really knows how to walk that line, like a Gilda Radner or a Martin Short. So Stephen picked these people out, and part of what he was doing, and I was watching, I came as a, an accompanist for two different girls who were auditioning for the show. And I, that's what I used to do, part of what I used to do at that time when I just got out of college in Toronto, besides playing in bars and uh, you know weddings and anything else, play, uh, I, could, I would accompany a person for an audition uh, for 20 bucks, vocal coach a little bit and learn a song together, and then I would go to the audition and play so they wouldn't have to depend on a strange house pianist that right. would be at these auditions anyway. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, I was starting to say, was trying to replicate each. They had 10 characters, and they were a smash off Broadway in New York, and his strategy was partly was replicate what he had in New York. We need a Jeffrey. We need, they, the characters were all named after the original kids. We need a Robin. You know, that's the way he was thinking and actually talking. Uh, but I also, there being so much room that they left for people to put their own shtick in that he was looking for that too. And he just found this incredible cast of people one by one. And, and it really was this confluence. In fact, it was the confluence was the, the, the talent. I mean, obviously we know all of these names now, 40 years later, 45 years later, but the talent was so great. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't unknown even among other uh, groups around the U.S. or Canada because then you had the the Second City guys come up to recruit people from from Godspell. That's how it, yes. And they did. They raided the show as Godspell was ending anyway after about a year run, and then they cast in the Second City nightclub, Gilda. Uh, Danny Aykroyd, but not he did wasn't in Godspell, but would hang out with this these kids. Everybody knew, he knew each the other. Crew, that he knew be around the five people. Yeah, yeah, he would. I remember him being in the green room and also going to see him. And he had an act with another hilarious woman named Valerie Bromfield. The two of them were doing a late night hip thing at a theater, you know, that we would go to see. Uh, so Danny was part of it, you know, the Second City Toronto company. And the people sent up were Joe Flaherty, who became an SCTV guy, and Brian Doyle Murray came back and did Saturday Night Live. And Bill, Bill Murray's brother. Older brother, yes. And I befriended Bill up in um, Toronto. Uh, I didn't join on to the SCTV. I had been in the gospel as, as uh, the uh, conductor. Stephen Schwartz hired me that day, too. I was there as an accompanist, and he said, uh, can you play the rest of the auditions? After I had played, one, one of the girls sang a song that I was playing for, I sang a song from the show. And he said, oh, let me speak to the piano player. And he said, can you play, stay for the rest of the auditions? I want to let this other guy go, which I did. And at the end of the day, he hired me. Can you put a band together and conduct this show? I'd never done it. I was 22. So, so this is a very interesting point because your parents were very supportive. Um, they wanted you to go to law school, uh, but you said, I, I want to be a musician. That's my passion. And Well, I actually said, give me a year. Yeah, you know, get, I was conservative too, come right. from this very conservative Canadian background. But this kind of getting hired by Godspell, was that like, okay, I did it? It was the end of the year. It was, you know, I would have been going, figuring out grad school, not necessarily law school, maybe grad school. I didn't know, but go straight, you know. It didn't work. 
And this thing happened, and now I was making $425 a week. Rich. You know, conducting Godspell, <laughs> yes, and successful, and I didn't have to go back to school. It was a, you know, final reprieve from the governor. And, and so now we have this kind of uh, interesting union between this amazing Second City cast from Chicago, which included, you know, John Belushi and, you know, the, the, the amazing cast that came out of that, the Godspell cast, and then ultimately all of you guys sort of converged on Lorne Michaels' first season of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's kind Lauren of Lauren was a Canadian. He was, uh, you know, um, engaged by NBC. And Dick Ebersol was the VP of Late Night at that time. And they were going to put together a late night show from scratch, you know, on Saturdays because they were going to stop showing reruns of Johnny Carson. And Lauren started recruiting. And as we've seen, it's one of his great talents, uh, casting. Like yeah. Schwartz, another one, you know, who can see the potential in people. And again, um, at this point, are you saying to yourself, okay, I'm not necessarily going to be a studio mus musician for the Rolling Stones, but I'm carving out a career as supporting for these amazing comedic talents? Well, I had gotten to New York by, via Steve Schwartz, who said, come down and play in the pit in Broadway. I still, no, I still wanted to be more rock and roll. That was my passion and studio musician, yes. And I started um, getting work right away through various crazy things. Phil Ramone was the Schwartz's sound consultant on and produced the cast album of The Magic Show. That was Steve Schwartz's show that I was now playing in the pit. And Phil you know, ended up calling me for a Burt Bacharach album to actually play you know before i knew rack. it i was on a background you know That's talk hilarious. about it yes i mean that was a realization of a dream very 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 early so i was moving pretty fast um but then this you know snl well lauren from canada hired howard from canada howard now oscar-winning uh, movie howard sure yeah movie writer you know soundtrack writer Howard, I was already in town doing the magic show. Howard called me. You'd be perfect for this. And you also know, he says, you know, Gilda's going to be doing it. And uh, and turned out I had, you know, through Brian Doyle Murray, he and I hit it off in Canada when he came up to show them how to do Second City with with Flaherty. He he and I hit it off, and he said, you got to meet my brother. Uh, he is just, he, he and you share a similar sense of humor. He does a thing in Chicago in the nightclub, and he told me about, some of Billy's stuff, and of course, it did sound hilarious. And like what? What was some of the well, stuff? Well, he, he said, you know, even then I was, uh, I and 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 Marty, uh, and maybe Marty was the guy who kind of showed me how funny this stuff was. Really, the older generation of show business, the Sammies and and uh, Danny Thomases, etc. How funny they were juxtaposed to the rock and roll generation. Uh, of of comedy and music, you know, what, there was some what do you more. Mean? What 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 does that mean? Juxtaposed with the well, rock and roll? well, what was happening in show business was the Beatles and you know the rock and roll revolution, and it it, it changed everything culturally, of course. And people wore blue jeans to work, but there were still these guys playing Vegas, which was the squarest thing at the time, because it was from the older generation and wearing tuxes and speaking in a in a manner in a mannered way that 
sounded, they were trying to sound so elegant at the time. They had no educations, but Sammy almost became British, you know, you know in order to sound educated. Mm. We thought this was so funny compared to the Rolling Stone. You know, here's a fucking song with John Leoka. Yeah, that was what we, more what was happening on stage. Well, you know, it's funny. You 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 put it really nicely in your memoir that the so-called British invasion of uh, rock and roll and of music was really the British people repackaging the older generation's blues and and so yes, on, of course, and then bringing it back here. That's of course true. Uh, but even before the the British invasion, there was the rock and roll re revolution with Elvis, and right. you know, changing show business, putting the Rat Pack out of business. You know, and I speak also in the book about that great television special, Sinatra and the Rat Pack welcome Elvis back from the army, and talk about a juxtaposition of you know what is hip versus what is square. You know, there it was. It was so interesting to see. Sinatra welcoming Elvis back, you know, in his tux and Elvis dressed the way he dressed, actually in uniform, but then, you know, in an Elvis outfit and yeah. uh, early Elvis, I mean, always with the collar up. Yeah. Um, yes, um, and I was fascinated by that. And so and so was Marty. Well, Marty was just an expert on the previous generation show business. Still loved it. Almost missed the rock and roll. You know. what, what do you think? And I want to get back to the Bill Murray question of what intrigued you initially um, from what his brother was saying. But what do you think made uh, Marty Short or a Gilda Radner or a Bill Murray stand out so much in comedy compared to somebody simply telling jokes? Well, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, they were not stand-ups. These guys were... Uh, part uh, they were theatrical and especially the you know Second City improv roots. Even Godspell was a kind of a rooted in the you know experimental theater, La Mama, and that crazy uh, you know uh, I can't remember the term for it now, but uh, improv you know is where they came from, and uh, improv comedy. So it was new. I mean Nichols and May were you know their their predecessors and. Uh, influences and influenced by, um, you know, not so much the stand-up comics, but the people creating Mort Saul or people creating, Shelley Berman, people creating comedy out of situations, situations, scenes. They were actors, comedy actors, and that kind of, you know, Lorne had this vision of let's make this into a television show, this sensibility, this improv sensibility. They had scripts, but, you know, we were... Lauren's early techniques absolutely were getting together in a studio on Wednesday afternoon and just try to develop musical stuff with the cast. You know, I was, I was in on that stuff because he was coming from the same type of improvisational theater. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Oh, I totally get it. Life insurance can be confusing time-consuming, complicated. And if you're ever paid out on your life insurance, you won't be the one using it. You'll be dead. That's the whole point of life insurance. So I am really glad our latest sponsor is the one company that is making it a lot easier to find good, solid life insurance for you. PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance. Compare quotes from America's top providers. And by doing so, you can even save up to 40% on your policy. Their simple, user-friendly website helps you work out exactly which policy is right for you 
and finds you the best price. And if you have any questions, they have a team of licensed experts waiting to talk you through it. No call waiting, no pressing a ton of buttons to direct your call. You get actual customer service, which is unbelievable. And they don't just do life insurance. You can get health insurance, insure your pet, or even protect your income, whatever you need. If you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out policygenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free. There's no sales pressure and zero hassle. Policygenius.com, it's life insurance for the 21st century. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Because I'm about to tell you, and I'm really happy to do so, and I'm really glad this company is a sponsor of the podcast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. It used to be you'd go to this site, then this site, then this site. Now you post everything on ZipRecruiter. It sends it out to all the job sites. It brings back all the data and all the applicants to one dashboard so you could screen, test, check out all the candidates in just one spot. And this is why they're different. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to the office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Saturday Night Live has withstood the test of time and so many sketch shows. I mean, there's been hundreds of sketch shows on TV. Nothing is, has been as iconic, even close to Saturday Night Live. With the kind of run that it's had. Yeah, and with just those casts, as you mentioned, Lauren Michaels' ability to cast people. But I think also it's the integration of music into what they were doing. Just, just every art form was in there, acting, comedy, mm -hmm. music. Uh, great cast, great direction, great hosts. Uh, what would you attribute some of this to? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm still working on your question, what made these people stand out? That to me is interesting, and I'm trying to think about it. And, uh, you know, so one thing was, yeah, they're not telling jokes because they're getting, they're getting their comedy from character and situation, like, in the like a theatrical uh, type of approach to it. But also, of course, they were special performers. Uh, in addition to that, even among those kind of performers, you know, what was it? Uh, and I've, I'm realizing sickness, just a horrible sickness that they had emotionally that, that brings this kind of talent out. What do you, what, I think what do you, you mean? could say that. You know, I don't know. You look at everybody. You know, we learned a lot about Martin Short from his, from his uh, one-man show that he did on Broadway called Fame Becomes Me. Uh, and he told a little bit about his past and his crazy, uh, you know, uh, parents and, and siblings and what he came out of in that kind of competition among siblings and, and him driven up by the whole thing up into his attic where he would put on Judy Garland records and pretend to be interviewing her like Jack Parr, you know. And out of the, you know, 
what as so original, but that you know, kind of where 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 he was coming from. Uh, original and a little, um, it's both smart and silly, is what I kind of oh, see. Okay, from these you things. know, but everybody kind of, I would say, had their same. You know, Billy uh, too. The Murray family was, I don't know, how many million, eight, six brothers, or something, six brothers. You know, in a household and a certain type of personality in the parent, whatever. You know, you look at e each person has their own story. So what, what were some of the Bill Murray um, initial acts that Brian described to you, his brother Brian described to you that, that made yeah, you think? Yeah, he said hmm. he's doing this thing in Chicago, a parody of Alan and Rossi. Well, it may be a little before your time. A little but, before my time. But on the Sullivan Show, again, this is where we saw all these uh, acts. That when he, uh, The very first time the Beatles was on, that was history changing, there was also a comedy act on called Alan and Rossi, and they were an old-fashioned style comedy duo. <clears throat> Both in tuxes, I think. One guy good looking, like a Dean Martin. The like other a guy, a really funny looking, like a no, I mean, funnier looking than Jerry Lewis, but still, you know, that that kind of a dichotomy in the two act. One guy, the funny, good looking straight man who could also sing. So B Billy would play that part, the good looking straight man who comes out and opens with a song. Well, the moon, you know, whatever it is, he opens with a song, just like Steve Rossi from Alan and Rossi. And then he'd say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to bring out my partner. And the other guy comes out, you know, about this high, he's got a diaper on. Wait a minute, you're not my partner, you're a little baby. Get out of here. And that was a kind of a simplification of the style that Alan and Rossi used to do, you know. And yes, it was right up my alley. When I heard about this back in 1973, I said, I got to meet this guy. It's almost like this... Um absurdism that reminds me a little of like Andy Kaufman as well, you know, kind of something that's just unexpected sort of performance as opposed to just straight comedy. Well, certainly yes, Andy Kaufman had his own, his own style, of course. This was, I don't know, Billy, uh, what Brian, the older brother thought was that you both love that kind of to parody that old fashioned uh, type of, you know, one generation before you type of, Huh. comedians, and I keep going back to that. They dressed in tuxedos, but it's the, you know, the easiest way to kind of identify them. Now, um, older-fashioned, and yet the, the key thing here that I keep coming back to is that at the same time as we kitted them with a sketch like that, we loved them too. And that's how we could try to be so funny and find the little things in their in their act to parody and and you know and get laughs off because we loved it so much we aspired to it secretly aspired to it you know and we had the love hey you know sammy davis yeah hilarious the way with all with our condification ladies and gentlemen if i might you know but still we want to that's what, exactly what we want to be at the same time and he's so talented musically entertainment wise you couldn't beat us sammy davis jr he just could slay an audience, so you can't argue with that, you know. We so we loved that, yet we kidded it at the same time, and that to me was the key that a lot of people don't get and still don't get, you know. Well, what do you mean don't? Well, get? I'm just thinking. My mind flashes ahead to the people, Dave, people who still say to me on the street, David Letterman. He used to, he was hard on you. What do you mean? Well, he used to kid you all the time about being Canadian and stuff. He loved me. That, don't you get it? He, there was such affection that he had for me. 
I mean, let's not forget. He, you know, people don't get it that it's just you do both at the same time for some. Well, I don't think two people can work together for thirty-three years without being there being affection and an ability to solve problems together and and work out creative difficulties if, if there ever is any. Absolutely. I mean, you guys were a real pair and and team, and and so let's let's go forward to David Letterman because by the time you were asked to to perform with Letterman. You had already had significant experience in, let's call it, musical comedy, which is you know from Godspell to SNL, SNL to Blues yeah. Brothers to to all right. of these different projects. So now you're on Letterman, probably the most qualified guy in the world to be a frontman of what was then called the world's most dangerous band on a late night show. No, and and again, you know, I was not really the leader of it. Howard Shore was. But Howard was a guy who felt uncomfortable in that it's almost the same, you know, part of the same feeling of that's an old-fashioned Vegasy cliche. Uh, you know, the, the Kardashians have made Vegas uh, cool again. So, but, but in, you know, and right there where I'm talking about, 70s, you know, an extension of the 60s, Vegas was the squarest. You don't want to play Vegas. Now Diplo is spinning there every night, you know, but it's, it was different then. Oh, so we didn't want to be like that. And we're, I, we're, I like how you're up on like current names. Like well, you've got to I throw in a Diplo. Diplo. Till this morning, you got to throw him news. in. You know, well, he was just in some kind of a thing. Yeah, he refused to do something. Yeah, uh, he criticized something. something. You know, I don't know. But I've lost my train of thought now. Oh, oh, sorry. So, so no, it's me. Uh, uh, so, so you're 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 starting at Letterman. Um, you have all this experience, Howard Shore. Oh yeah, Howard Shore. I was saying, you know, he he thought that it was to stand out in front of a band and conduct it was was too cliche. He was trying to one year he tried to be sitting at a desk, sort of an old antique desk on the stage, anything to avoid being, you know. Um, but I was more desperate for attention and being more animated and 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 in fact had just come back from Hollywood doing a where I did a I took a year off and did a sitcom. Yeah, a Norman uh, Lear back uh, sitcom. Yeah, and came back from there with these Elton John glasses. These white Elton John glasses exactly the same as his. I was such a a fan of his that when I went to, you know, a costumer took me for the sitcom took me to the place on Sunset Boulevard where he got his glasses. It was called Optique Boutique, and they said, here, we just had these made up for Elton, and, you know, lenses this thick. And I put them on, those white ones, and I just said, oh, give me a pair of these. And I I wore them, too. I wore them in the sitcom, and then I continued to wear them on Saturday Night Live, even though they were Elton's trademark. Well, and not mine. Probably, yeah, probably the people forgot that it was Elton's trademark, and then it became yours. It worked for me, too. Probably more people watched you because they were seeing you every Saturday night. They remind me of Elton, whatever, you know. I didn't mind. Yeah. Uh, I didn't mind not even, you know, ripping off Elton, uh, his glasses thing. Well, part of part of your career is you didn't really mind much in the <laughs> sense that, you know, let's just call it like it is. For 33 years, you didn't mind uh, playing, not really playing second fiddle. That's almost too harsh a word. But Letterman, it was Letterman's show. It was Late Night with David Letterman. And you were on every episode. Actually, you you know, were the absolutely foil. not too harsh a word. Yes, I mean it was his show. I was his employee, and he was so kind and generous with airtime that he said, "If you and, and especially for an you know an ego guy like me, but trying to bust out 
as as retiring and shy as I am on the street, you know, I have inside this. I'm just as sick as all the rest of them up in Canada. Uh, and he said, if you have anything to say, meaning that's funny, come in, you know, jump in. But you I, had to earn that. You 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 may you kind of so, broke in maybe a so. few times and you first. were saying, you know, I I I must uh, uh, remember that the first meeting that I had, I just got this call after two years of freelancing in the studios after Saturday Night Live, and then a call from Letterman's people come in and have a meeting with him and his producer, and um, uh, excuse me, and uh, we did hit it off in this meeting, and they said, "Are you?" And I had a number of meetings too before they actually hired me, but they would ask the same questions. And one of them from the producer, are you the kind of guy that Dave could play off of? Of course, it's really about Dave, you know. You've got to make him look good. And in any way, you know, and that's everyone's job. Not that he needs it, but nonetheless, it's our job. And are you the kind of guy he could get some laughs, you know, play off of? And I would say, absolutely, yes. That's what I've done. I actually, you know, Okay, but they didn't design the show that way. They didn't give me a little, you know, Paul introduces, you know, Dave would introduce me, but then just go on. It was never, you know, and then Paul says, thank, you know, says good evening. I, I didn't get a shot at doing that for quite a while. I then realized I've got to just take this shot. I grabbed the mic on, on the, you know, and, and it wasn't on, you know, and I had to, you know, at the end of the show, well, can we get my mic turned on? Well, I don't think they want it on. No, they do. No, we want it on. You know, I had to go through all of that. Well, get it turned on. And the next night, started speaking again, just in kind of Vegas talk, if I, if, if you will. Sammy Davis style, marvelous, you know, whatever. And Dave got a kick out of it. He liked it. He wasn't expecting it. Yeah, you had this kind of like old style, hip, you yeah. know, hep. Uh, kind of way I already of came out with in a, this kind of character developed by, you know, the kidding and the and simultaneously loving of a, of of Sammy Davis and his ilk. And, and then, but then, how your friends from Godspell, you know, Martin Short, Gilderad, all how they all kind of played off of that, and you played off of each other doing that for for years. We still find it funny. We're we're still like any group of friends laughing at the things that, that made us laugh back in 1972. So, yes, we're guilty of that for sure. And, and so so now things are, like, after a while at Letterman, you're, 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 you're finding your groove, you're, you're going back and forth with him. And from there, it's 33 years of experience after experience. I mean, you, you met every hero you possibly could have had that was alive because they all some sooner or later ended up on yeah, late night. Yeah. Like what were some, now this is just kind of gossiping, but what's, what were some of the more fun experiences for you that, that were, so, that are so memorable now? Well, of course I, you know, I think about the musical guests. I didn't even hear you. Were you saying, you know, you met every, every, did you say musician or? Yeah, musician, comedian, Comedian, everybody. yes, yes. I don't know. I mean, there were so many of them. Celebrity. You've got to narrow it down. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, Gilbert Gottfried, one of the funniest guys, and um, he, he, uh, I hadn't really met him yet, but I knew he was a sort of a kindred spirit, and, um, and I said, uh, when you, well, I would ask the comics what I should play when they came out. 
because I thought they're going to do stand-up. They have to work, you know. Other people, I would just make up things and hit them with it, you know, and sometimes uh, it might be a comment on them, but I wasn't, there was no Twitter. I wasn't tweeting about it, <laughs> you know, so I wasn't letting, if you got it, you got it, you didn't get it, you know, and you didn't get in trouble. Um, but um, with Gilbert, I said, you know, you were in two flop. You were in one season of Saturday Night Live that was an absolute flop. You were ne- that cast was never heard of again. Then you were on the Alan Thick, Thick of the Night show, which was such a colossal bomb. I said, I want to play a medley of both of those theme songs when you come out. And he, oh, he loved it. Yes. But when I, I realized if it's going to be a little long, you know, it's like a whole 30 seconds. What are you going to do? You're going to stand up. He says, I'll just wait. And this is the, his first uh, shot on the Letterman show. Uh, I thought he's a funny enough guy that he's going to just wait for these, this medley before he jumps in. Not too nervous to wait and appreciate that in-joke that nobody else will get. It seems like a lot of performance uh, is figuring out where where is the appropriate edge and how you step just slightly above it. Mm. So so for for Gilbert Gottfried, obviously he had his entire persona, which was so amazing and and stood out. But also this ability to have a silence to play uh, a thirty second clip of songs that people are not going to remember. Be so self assured that he's willing to wait for that on his very first shot on Letterman. Right. He's just going to fuck up his timing a little bit, you would think. But anyway, that's how I always respected him since then. I feel and like. Then, he, and then musically, James Brown, his first appearance, nothing will ever top that. Yeah, I, I watched. So it's basically the, Gilbert Gottfried, James Brown, two guys that never thought they'd be mentioned in the same breath. Uh, well, well, I watched the uh, James Brown, his first clip on, on yeah. Letterman, and it really kind of gave me a different appreciation for James Brown, actually. Like, he controls the audience so much. Like he's so much playing for the audience and creating this aura around himself. It's it's more than the music, it's him. It sure is. He was the godfather of soul and, and probably the guy with more nicknames than any other person in show business. The, the you know, Mr. Please, Please, <clears throat> uh, the uh, um, hardest working man in show business. You know, there's five, six different nicknames. They're all true about him. Well, and it, and his commitment to his persona as he's performing was was unbelievable. Just like just like a Gilbert Gottfried or a Bill Murray, he was. You know, it was 1982, but he was still at the top of his game. And uh, that performance is one of the greatest. You know, I don't. Uh, I never thought I could play music so funky. You know, until I. All of us in the band were that way. He used my four piece band and just brought two horns of his own. And none of us in our house band thought, you know, that we were ever going to be playing with James Brown under these conditions. And still, you know, a little under-rehearsed, under too. That first song that you can see on YouTube is like the most rehearsed, Sex Machine. Then we did two other ones. This is before, the, you know, the show was so standardized that it was going to be one song at the very end of the show. He did a first song early in the show. Second song, there was a time where we didn't even have an an, int- uh, an ending rehearsed. Somehow we just ended it. You know, we just took his direction and, and ended it. And then he said spontaneously, let me do a third song at the very end. And Dave said, yeah, we'll take a commercial. We'll come back. And he did a third one just because he heard us playing it, you know, on a, brump, on a bumper. And uh, what an exciting night. He took over the whole show and Letterman couldn't have been happier. And so how do you feel you grew 
during these experiences. So you're meeting all these people who you you had looked up to for so long. Plus, you're getting exposure to all you. I mean, Letterman himself was on the forefront of a big change in late night comedy and and making it much more alternative and experimental. Like, yeah. how did you grow through this? All different ways, certainly. Certainly, knowing you know, uh, in general, making mistakes. But there's always a show the very next day to try to make up for it and try not to make that mistake again. Like what would be a sample mistake? Oh, I mean, I mean, there's so many. You know, I don't know. I just thinking about James Brown. Though I thought you were going to ask, you know, like what what did you learn from a James Brown? Well, so much. He was the ultimate band leader. You know, one thing that comes to mind is you know you're always having to make a signal to the band. Uh, let's go back to the top, back to the top of the chart for whatever reason, you know? And I used to, as a kid, I would just be going like this, you know? As Hitting a, your head. As my signal, you know? And everybody went, oh, okay, back to the top. And, but when James was in control, I noticed what he did. He just went like this. Hmm. And I said, oh, well, that, you know, <laughs> look, looks so much cooler than what I'm trying, what I'm doing. So from then on, that's well, my signal. More energy efficient, too. Just more energy efficient, but just cooler looking. You know, yeah. maybe it means my mind. You know, it's, it's something that you can get away with as a part of your performance, and not just a silly thing like I used to do to go back to the top. And, and again, your your interactions with Letterman and watching Letterman for so many years kind of command a entire production every single night. Yes, like that must have been obviously that was an amazing experience. But what, what, well, you're so right uh, in that that's what uh, you know in describing it that way. And I realized it when I got to host it those two times that I did. Right and, when you know, he was night sick time, and he had a, and when Harry when, was he, born. when he had a baby, yes. And there was no I mean what he had to do and what I tried to do no comparison to what I had been doing every night is, oh my God, this is what he's been doing? Carrying the whole show on his shoulders. What surprised you? The pacing of it, uh, just that it's all on you. Whether you, you know, whether the show is entertaining or not, no one else, Matt, you know, has anything to do with it but you, the host. And I said, oh, man, you know, the pacing of it, the tone of it, the attitude, you know, hey, you name it, it's all about the host. So, uh, well, yeah, incredible. Uh, and and the consistency of it, too, because he couldn't vary that much. I mean, he obviously tried many things and there was many different formats, but he still had to cater to his audience. Mm -hmm. He still couldn't disappoint them. Well, that's, you know, stuff that was just way over my head. I didn't have to go, to, you know, be privy to what kind of a show he was trying to, to do. I mean, obviously, you know, his suits got better and he became a more of a mainstream host when he moved to 1130. Right. Uh, more of a guy that others start to make fun of, you know? We were like, just like he we was the last generation suddenly. Just like we were making fun of, yes. Uh, but that's where he was going, you know, with his career. He wasn't just going to be a uh, an underground, anti-establishment commenter on, you know, he wanted to be the real thing. Well, it's interesting. I guess you, you can look at like the Larry Sanders show on HBO, which was sort of a, a spoof on late night. It was a sitcom that was a spoof on late night talk shows. To some extent, even though Letterman played a side character on that occasionally, to some extent, that was a spoof on the older generation of, of talk shows. Talk shows changed incredibly after that. And, and you great think Saunders was. Out of that. Well, I always thought Larry Sanders was trying to be Letterman, do, just doing Letterman. Yeah. 
and the kind of guy. But, but a poor job of it. I mean, the show though. Yes. Not not Chandra's the the character, but the show was a show about a Letterman type of show. Yes. A younger, you know, uh, not so much a, a Johnny Carson, but more the era of David Letterman, who who would have a wacky sketch and. Well, I guess it was kind of Carson-esque too, sure. Um, and then you look what came out of, uh, you know, I, I would almost use that as a division of generations because from that came John Stewart and then all this comedic talent like Judd Apatow wrote for mm-hmm. the Larry Sanders show and, and Sarah Silverman and all these, Bob Odenkirk came out of there. Like Yes, yes. Well, we see it now. I've I've been enjoying the show. You were just recently on YouTube, yes. Oh, yeah. Seeing all the episodes that I didn't see. Yeah, it's a, it's a great show. Uh, but they had certain writers who had been Letterman writers. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yes, and you know, and had certain information about back, you know, backstage at Letterman that would creep into Larry Sanders sometimes. You know, given things that, that only those guys would know. Given that the show was so much dependent on Letterman's life and moods and life situations and so on was there ever a point where you were worried what was going to happen next on the show like obviously the the late night wars between letterman and leno are are, have been written about uh you know ad nauseum but were you personally ever wondering what was happening i don't think so that was was never my style as you as you know you know i just what's next that was the kind of thing for me, I certainly was digging the show, and I do remember a, a time when we were, you know, we were doing it at twelve thirty, and Letterman uh, had a little conversation with me and says, "You know, there's some talk about us moving into the eleven thirty spot." And this is when he still thought it might be on Channel NBC. Four, same network, you know. What do you and I? What do you think? And I was just so, you know, it was his. Um, and it's no secret, it was his ambition, you know, to be in that spot. Yes, and really, yeah, and also no secret, yeah, The Tonight Show, that's what really, you know, he idolized Carson, as all of them really still do. Um, but that's what he wanted, and I, but I was having such a good time, I just said, yeah, that would be great, you know, this is great too, I don't, you know, I was kind of disappointing in my, I didn't really say, oh, you know, that's what we got to go for. Oh, fantastic. I was just, you know, very lackadaisical about it. Was he the type to confide in you when he was maybe stressed about, you know, in the final stages of those negotiations? No, no, I wasn't involved in that. But but I, you know, I certainly was the first guy he told when he decided to pack it in two years ago, you know, at a CBS. And that was great. I mean, an amazing uh, memory of just being about to go on stage. We used to go out, you know, to just say hello to the audience before we rolled the tape. You know, first me, a song with the band, and then him, and we're backstage, and I'm getting ready to go on. He says, just come here. Takes me into like a little alcove in that old Ed Sullivan Theater, you know, and, and just as I just, I gave my notice, like I gave a year's notice. Oh my God! I said, "Well, <laughs> that's a now, Paul Schaefer. and I, oh, I'm on. Did that throw off your show? And I had to go do the show. You know, uh, that's genius, by the way, on Letterman's part to uh-huh. do that to try to challenge you to put on the best show possible when your whole career now is just turned not upside down, but is going to shift. Perhaps. How, uh, how, how did you face the challenge? Or did you just put it to the side? I'm going to think about this. No, later. Uh, yes, I did, but. Uh, you know, I just couldn't help but think, well, everything's different now. Every, you know, everything feels different now. 
still as a year. And we, of course, I forgot about that as we all did. We just kept doing the shows. And then all of a sudden the year was over and we, and we had stopped doing it. But it was quite a transition. There's no question about it. Going did from that, you know, every single day a show and being up all the time. Your your metabolism's always up for a show because you just finished one, but you got another one the very next day, and then all of a sudden you're not you don't have that schedule anymore. It was a huge adjustment. Did you feel lonely? Lonely? I don't know if it was that. No, just I don't know. Just jarred, and certainly that feeling of well, ah, it's over. Oh, it's great. You know, well now time to relax. You know, and then very shortly after that, oh, just so bored. Can't, what do I do now? You know, I don't know four o'clock. No, I don't have to do this. No, I don't, you know, I don't. well, what's on TV? And then just, you know, getting depressed right away. And then, and then of course, getting an opportunity to make this new CD that I made with the old band and cheering up right away, just like in college when I started playing again and was no longer depressed. All I have to do is keep playing the piano. That keeps me happy. So I'm, you know, I got over it, happy again. And you're, and you're touring now with the world's most dangerous fun, band? Fun, yes. The same band, you know, I, that, that was uh, together all those years and with the bigger version at CBS with the horn, with three. Yes, we've been touring. We're actually doing just weekends. And almost at the end of the tour now is a springtime thing to support the CD. But we have some dates coming up and uh, they uh, just outside of uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, on next Friday, and um, and then uh, Beverly Hills, so the Sabon Theater on Saturday, and then we go to like Minneapolis and base Chicago, places like that. How can people interlock uh, in Michigan? Uh, how, is there a website people could like uh, go to? There is, yes, yes. It's Paul Schaefer and the World's Most Dangerous Band website. You know, probably dot com, and probably on iTunes. All the songs of the of the CD. The album and- is on iTunes, and there's also a Facebook page. Uh, World's most, Paul Shaver, World's Most Dangerous Band, you know, gives the rest of the dates, yeah. And the album is cute. I had a lot of fun making it. Learn not to, you know, to just have fun. If you're not having fun in the studio, how can the audience have fun? But there certainly was That's period, a really interesting point. Certainly were periods of time when I forgot that, though. It was just working hard and trying to make my state, my musical statement and... That's no, nobody wants to hear that. You know? But I think that's why you like co- cover songs, doing cover songs so much, because these are things you love, and so you love performing get them. Me, gets, gets me off, excuse the expression. And, uh, you know, as I said, uh, I was so proud of myself for Path of Least Resistance at the top of Letterman, at uh, the Letterman run. Let me just run, play the songs that I love. What's easier than that? And it just comes through. There's a guy doing what he loves, you know? And it was the same with all the other, some of the musicians I hired were a little hipper than that, more jazz and fusion oriented, but they loved the Beatles. And, you know, really secretly, they loved the same top 40 stuff that I loved. And I kind of brought that, their expertise to this simpler style of music and enabled me to play it, you know, really right for the first time. So Instead I, of just playing Louie Louie like everybody plays it, you know. Right. Play it right, and there's some, there was something about the real original arrangement that was just pretty cool. Just well, play it again. And also, but you've played it in, I mean, it's been covered so many times, and you've you've kind of mastered every cover. Like, you've played you've played it. How about Louie Louie? Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, as a kid in Canada, where we develop all of these techniques and stuff, the Guess Who? Do you remember who yeah, that yeah, band was? Canadian band, and they sang um, American Woman, yeah. ironically enough. But also These Eyes, a ballad. They had a lot of international hits that came from Winnipeg, Manitoba, 500 miles away from where I came. And we, I was always seeing them as a kid because they would come through 
you know, our town on the way home at Christmas time and stuff. Saw them all the time. And before they had their own hits, they were the greatest cover band in the world. Four guys, quite talented. Burton Cummings, incredible mimic, the singer. If they did Beatles, they sounded like the Beatles. You know, if they did Georgie Fame, they sounded like it. They could sound like everybody they did, the Kinks. And one time they actually did. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, here's Louie Louie, as done by every band that ever, that ever recorded it. And they did a little snatch of it, like an entertainment piece that I never forgot. Anyway, the in influence was such that I never felt that, that writing a song was so important. And yet American Woman by them uh, is such a great song. And it's like become a real classic in Canada. Us Canadians are so <laughs> polite, eh? And we're, we're kind of humble, you know, eh? And we don't really think anything, anybody's any good until they make it outside of Canada, eh? <laughs> so, but can, for that reason, American Woman was, to us, it was just a song by the Guess Who. It's not real, but I got here, you know, and I remember Slash coming on Letterman with five different songs he was going to play when he sat in with our band. Zeppelin, of course, I'd like to do, you know, an American woman. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, That's funny. You know, to him, it was a real That's one you rocker right up there with, uh, you need fooling, you know. Yeah. So I have to ask, um, is it totally true Jerry Seinfeld wanted you to play George? Well, all I can say is it's... Um, my wife hates when I when I get into this story, so I, mean, I can't I can't talk about it anymore. Why does she hate it? Well, I I don't know why she doesn't like to hear it. I he has denied it. I I saw him on denying it. So I you know what more I can't really even speak about it anymore. Once he he has said it's not true. Well, there could be a lot of reasons why he says that, but the story goes somebody called I guess Letterman. I, that's my recollection. No, I got it. I didn't even have an assistant at the time mm -hmm. or anything. You know, you get these things in life a little bit, you know. Lauren even used to say, you get it the year after you need it or something like that. Whatever it was, I had no way to answer all these messages that were coming in. And one came through and it said, Castle Rock. I, I couldn't remember who, somebody has a company called Castle Rock. Couldn't remember. Turned out to be Rob Reiner's company. Jerry Seinfeld's getting a show and he wants you to be a sidekick. That's all it said. I didn't it didn't seem to have to even read for it, but I just was too overwhelmed with work from the Letterman show and stuff, and I didn't even call back on and it. And he was at the time he was a, a top tier comedian, but not known for his TV work. Well, and I just thought, you know, I, I I'm I'm do, doing so well here, you know, uh, and I I just didn't have time to give it two thoughts. And little did I know at the time I was passing on the most beloved show in television history, yes. And, so, uh, and that, you know, as I say, it may, all I can, it may or might, may not be true. I have to say that. I think a, a lawyer would, and also, as long as I say allegedly, allegedly you, this happened. You didn't necessarily make a bad decision. It's easy to say things in retrospect. Well, even if I had had my wits about me and had somebody to return the call initially, I probably would have said I can't leave that. I get to do comedy and music at the same time on Letterman. That's every day. Kind of every day. That sort of was, you know, the pinnacle for me. It, it, so to be, and I had been in a sitcom. I, I alluded to it just a right. second ago, this year at the top in 77, uh, when I met Don Kirshner and stuff. Uh, so I had, even though that was kind of like the monkeys and had some music to it as well, but the music was pre-recorded and stuff. And mainly we were sitcom actors 
And it wasn't making me as happy as even when I got my old job back on SNL and got to play music. Well, Music is really still more, as much as I love to get laughs, that music is really where it's at for me. So, so, so two last points, really. It seems like you always, from the beginning of your career, even up, up through now, you always did what you love to do. So you always did what you chose to do. Uh, I always did what I chose to do. Well, I don't know. Things just happened. That's all I can say. I certainly did not do uh, SC, you know, the Second City nightclub show in Toronto, although I was offered that job. But it was just this big pay cut. You know, I, I must be honest. From $425 down to, I don't know, two-something. And I just said, this doesn't make sense. Even to a kid, and all my friends were doing it, it uh, doesn't make sense to me. It didn't seem right. And I would just be off stage playing the piano. You know, certainly learning about improv. I, I wish I was doing that. But I hung out incessantly at that show anyway. Learned all the sketches and stuff and watched the pianist and figured out, you know, I learned a lot just from, my, from being able to hang out every night and watch that show. Well, well, and which brings me to my my second point about your career, which is um, it, it it reminds me of something once said about Bill Murray. So Harold Ramis said, "Always stand next to the smartest person in the room." So he stood next to Bill Murray, mm. and of course, they had great success together after that. And it seems like you also have always made a point of finding you know the funniest or the or the most musical people to stand next to maybe and- so i certainly i mean i love to laugh i love funny people you know and it's true that when you know in godspell 72 there was a cast there was a band and i was hanging with the cast for sure i just you know i they seem to be having more fun with their lives than a normal person you know mm-hmm. and i i i wanted to be a little more like them and they did rub off on me, you know, and as we did, you know, a little bit of a skill of how to read lines in it, you know, and that was so pretty preparative, you know, pretty important uh, for that reason. But yeah, Stan, yes, I've been a sidekick and certainly gotten, what an honor to be a sidekick to a letterman, you know, and then to be, you know, Belushi's band leader in the Blues Brothers and stuff. It's absolutely true. So much Now genius. I've made a transition. I have made a record and I'm on doing concerts, these concerts, I have had to transition to become the front man. And again, it's it's a lot harder. How, how but I'm feel? absolutely digging. You're, you're on the learning curve with it. How, how's it feel? I'm loving it. And every night I learn something new from the audience, how to do it. And the more you do it, you know, the more like the pro Sammy Davis. And sure enough, I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, for your kind edification and thinking about Sammy, but now saying it as if it's really me. And I've blurred that line as we all do. And we become what we mock at the end of it all. And I have now, you know, I'm now fronting a band. But it's just so great, that interaction with the audience. is almost, you know, I get laughs. I tell stories in the show. I get laughs like a stand-up. And then we go into songs. That's great. I'm having a lot of fun. So, so uh, you and Letterman, any chance for one renewal show? I mean, your one reunite, reunion show or anything? Well, um... That'd be so much fun with his yes, beard. Yes, I don't know. You know, um, I think he might have changed his mind. Who knows how he's feeling? Obviously, it's whatever he would want to do. I'd, I would do whatever he wanted to do, whether he decides not to do it again, like Robert Plant did with the Honey Drippers, don't, you know, don't go back. Or a thing, you know, I, if he wanted to do something, 
Absolutely, I'm there. We'll see. We'll see what happens. He's been saying, you know, it just, he's doing just enough to to feel useful. Uh, yeah, he'll That's do he like interviews now. here and there. He'll like host Something awards. Something that you know, if if it's Pearl Jam, yeah. getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, he loves them. He'll come and make the speech about them. You know, and now he's getting the Mark Twain award and he's he's looking forward to that just oh you should he, play are you gonna play the music yes okay. i am oh that's yes. great he's asked me yeah would you have the whole band there and play for it and so we are what's the worst experience you had at Leverage? this is the last question i promise what's the uh, worst there wasn't really a worst there really like wasn't any guests that got out of control or anything well of course there were obviously but he would have to deal with that you yeah. know not so so much me um, you know, certain acts, you know, you let you feel I shouldn't, oh, I made a mistake. You know, we were live, we were all the way live. And sometimes you make a musical mistake and things like that. Or one time I yelled at a stage manager at Christmas time. I wrecked Christmas right after Darlene Love's big Christmas number and the snow was falling and I lost my temper because it had been such a long day. And I actually was the Grinch <laughs> who ruined Christmas in front of the audience. And then a let you know, one of them sent a letter to page six. I used to think Paul Schaefer was a nice guy, but I was at the Christmas show and oh my God, you know. How'd you feel when you saw that? Oh, I felt just terrible, but I I was advised what's required is an apology, and I was only too happy to say I'm just an asshole. I lost it and what am I gonna do? And page six wrote it in a kind of a sympathetic way, luckily, but I was an absolute asshole. Showing the worst part of a guy, you know, I'm supposed to be, you know, oh, I'm so, an, 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 an uh, what do you call it? An anomaly in a uh, show, you know, no, an actual nice guy, but absolutely lost it and was the total asshole like, like Buddy Rich on the bus. Well, it happened only once, I guess, in 33 uh, years. So. Uh, well, maybe not just once, but, <laughs> uh, you know, we were very tightly wound during that Letterman show. We were doing a show every day. What's and your what's your favorite late night right now? Like how is late night changing? Oh, it's all different now. It's so great now. You know, it's become it's a new iteration of it. And like, you know, the talent, there's some talented guys who sing and dance, obviously, that we love. And, you know, they're so they've taken it into a more variety show yeah. place. And our our friend Colbert has scored where he always should have been anyway, political commentary you right. know so it's all great but we had a wonderful you know the longest run doing it and a lot of people i think they're all influenced by dave let's face it you know he's him like by carson but the rest of them by dave yeah well paul schaefer uh touring with the, the world's most dangerous band and a new cd out thanks for so much for coming it's on the been show. a lot of fun you sure have did your research? Oh my goodness! I think I should get a band for my podcast. What do you think? I think <laughs> yes, absolutely. You need live music, so maybe I'll, we'll start having a band. I I think podcasting could be potentially the new late night at some point. It is, is it not? You know, it's the hippest people. It's it's all about those hits the, the, and you know the internet presence of a of a network show. Anyway, you you just forego all of that. It's no longer important, right? Just get and down the to the nitty gritty of the podcast, and you might as well have live music. Yeah, keep it going. I I agree. I'm going to do it. Nowadays, well, that's another, you know, we could go on for another hour and a half. It's been a pleasure, though. Yeah, thanks, Paul. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, 
I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. Anna Scheinman, Andrew Roan, The Unicorn Queen, Soul Surf Recovery, and every other person out there who is listening and sharing. I really, really can't thank you enough for your ongoing support and reviews. Thanks.